what it is to be young. But you, you don't know what it is to be old. Someday, you'll be saying the same thing. Time takes away, so the story is told. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the Evil Eye Goth Movie Podcast. I am your co-host, Sam Deegan. I am your other co-host, Robert Scabarla. And on this episode, we have once again embraced doing something a little unusual, and we are going to talk about one of our favorite goth icons, who is not really a goth icon, but we've decided that he is. We've kind of given up on the idea of this being a goth movie podcast. We no, just, we haven't. We, after the director of goth, um, unfortunately discovered our first episode, we figured it would only be fair if we started branching out and no longer including the rules anymore because they're kind of superfluous at this point. I mean, they were superfluous Super, to superfluous. begin. Superfluous. They were superfluous to begin with. <laughs> this is true. But I, I do think... Shout out to Brad Sykes. Yes, thank you, Brad Sykes, uh, for all of your amazing and ridiculous SOV movies. But I think one of the things that we've been wanting to talk about more are not only figures who are influential to goth music, like Coil, which is what we focused on last episode... But definitely also the way that gothic literary tropes sort of intrude into cinema and kind of how that went on to influence goth subculture. So so we also wanted to talk about men in capes. And you can't talk about a man in a cape without talking about the man who wore the cape the best. And I, that man is... Orson Welles. So this is an episode about dedicated to involving everything about Orson Welles, or at least a couple of his movies. Yes, yeah. I think part of the problem with doing a single podcast episode on Orson Welles is that you could have a single podcast solely dedicated to Welles' career because he was ridiculously prolific. He worked in theater, in radio, in television, in film, was super innovative. Had his own talk show. Yes, and made many fantastic commercials. <laughs> He made much interesting ephemera throughout the course of his life. Some of it, obviously, um, is more popular than others. But, you know, even when you get those deep cuts, like that song I included at the beginning of the episode, um, you get all kinds of weird and interesting aspects of his life coming out of it. You know, he always comes across as charming, no matter how bad the art sometimes that he's involved in is. Like, I'm thinking of Necromancy, which isn't a good movie. I know you like it. I do like it, and I don't think that we should make fun of... I'm not making fun of it. I'm just saying it's bad. There's a distinction between the two. You can acknowledge something is not good while, while still... Yes, while yes. still loving it and being entertained by it, which is definitely my thing. Right. Uh, I mean, my whole thing now is everyone has to, you know, rationalize their guilty pleasures. I don't care. I know stuff I like is bad. It's fine that yep. things are bad, so long as you know you don't belittle the people making them. Sure, and I think Bird Eye Gordon, who directed Necromancy... Yes. He also directed many good movies, too. Sure, but I think he also knew... What was, he was fully self-aware of what he was making, kind of along the same lines of somebody like William Castle. Right. But, but with Orson or Welles. Yes, with Orson Welles, I also think it feels sort of appropriate 
in a way to be recording this episode today because it's a goddamn Fincher movie. Well, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> We're not going to talk about that yet because Wells was somebody who celebrated life in a way that is sort of unparalleled. And I don't know about you, but uh, I could really use that kind of energy today. So I, I don't want to, you know, talk about this too much because it's a very sad subject. But a right. uh, friend of both of ours, friend of the podcast, somebody wonderful that, being. yes, one of the most wonderful, like life affirming human beings ever, Mike McPadden, who, if you don't know his work, uh, he's written a couple books, uh, Teen Movie Hell. He did zines in the early 90s. He worked for Hustler, I believe. Yep. Um, he was involved in everything you can think of that is cool. Yeah, he's very, very unexpectedly passed away this week, which is, I think, just a sort of final fuck you from 2020. You know, it has to take the good ones. It can't take the bad ones, unfortunately. Yeah. If, Too many of them made it through the year, and they're going to make it out alive. Yeah, if we could trade Mike McPadden for Mitch McConnell, I would be Trump, all aboard them. with Rudy, that idea. I, I would give any of them. All of them, Mike. actually. I mean, take as many of them as you want. All of them. The entire Republican Party. Uh, Sadly, I will never get out of this world alive. <laughs> no. But Mike was definitely someone who was super prolific. He loved collaborating and working with people. And but he had that Wells energy, you know? He was yes. a larger-than-life persona, the way Wells was. Wells was just like, when you talked to him, when you read what he had written, when you watched him on the screen, he projected this air of, like, size and scope which mike gives that off anytime if you've ever listened to him talk um you know he was involved with the gilbert godfrey podcast if you've seen him in like the mr skin documentary you know he has that like larger than life persona yeah and if you aren't familiar with him i would definitely say check out google him check out some of his writing his essay on why he fucking hated Mandy is one of my favorite things ever. So that's around the time I met Mike. We kind of bonded over that because I was like, there's a part of me that appreciates Mandy. Like if you watch Mandy thinking it's parodying a lot of the movies that it clearly is referencing, it's awesome. If it's sincere, then I I don't know what to think of it, you know, <laughs> but his, his essay on why it's bad for Daily Grindhouse was really great. It's so good. And but I'd also recommend his uh, teen, a teen movie hell book, which just came out last year. Lots yes. of great essays in there from him and other writers. His heavy metal movies, great book as well. Um, he wrote a lot of great stuff. Yeah, and he also um, has this podcast called uh, Busted Guts. Busted Guts with Cat, who is my longtime collaborator, and another one called uh, Movies from the Seventies. Oh, right. Which. Crackpot Cinema, too, he was doing. He was yes. a renaissance man. Yeah, he did it all. So we didn't intentionally say, okay, you know, Mike just passed away. Who does he remind us of? Let's <laughs> do an Orson Welles episode. But while we're doing this, it's like there are definite similarities between the two of them in a wonderful way. And I think also Mike is somebody who reminded everyone to celebrate Life. the things that they love and to enjoy life as much as possible. And so Orson Welles is the same way, but also talking about Orson Welles is something that makes me very happy. I'm obsessed with him. So it's sort of nice to have an episode where we can talk about somebody who was a public figure, definitely known for being this 
this kind of savant with innovation in theater and cinema and radio. But he also, I think, for even people who don't know his films, he became this kind of cultural figure. Kind of like a meme before he, memes existed. Yeah, definitely. Who was somebody who just celebrated the fuck out of life. People know Orson Welles for being Orson Welles more than they often know his art sometimes. If you say Orson Welles, even to like, you know, someone under the age of 30, they still have an idea of who he was. It might yeah. be late period Orson Welles, which is still fantastic. But, Agreed. you know, they have Welles is like this cultural figure that became enshrined in like the American identity to an extent because he was like a rock and tour. He was, you totally. know, a showman. He's the kind of thing that when you think of like America, in many ways, like yeah. when you think of like all of the great weird figures, he's one of those people who always stands out at the top because, you know, he came up in an era where he could, he was kind of ahead of himself in the way that he projected persona and he created this idea of Orson Welles on top of like all of the art that he was creating. Yeah, he was great. Like so many other important cinema figures and also literary figures, he was great at mythologizing and in particular self-mythologizing yes. but he's somebody who I think also was genuinely a genius and was just brilliant and That's an understatement yeah and so I do also think there is relevance to talking about him as somebody who was important to gothic cinema because he was involved in it not only as a director but also as an actor and so what we've decided to do is to kind of focus on a couple of key movies that we think sort of fits under that theme. And we're not really going to talk about Citizen Kane, which is the first film he directed, which really got him into trouble because he ran so over schedule and budget. Uh, but it even starts with something as early as Citizen Kane. If you look at the way that German expressionism really influenced the look of Citizen Kane, the way the story is told. And I think that's something that carries throughout all of his films. And if you look, there's an, intention, an, an intentionality to the way his movies are shot. Even before that, I know, you know, I brought up Mank a minute or two ago where, you know, there's this idea that Fincher has kind of come at him with um, some quotes that he said throughout the course of his career. There's the one where he said he learned, I think, lighting in like 12 minutes or something. And that's all you need to know, which is a misrepresentation of what Wells was saying. Totally. People because, loved misquoting him. Right. Because if you look even at like the way his plays were staged prior to that, the use of shadows, the way he was oh, yeah. um, blocking the stage, the way he was putting actors out there, a lot of it carries through into his films. And a lot of that influenced later works of like gothic cinema, the way um, totally. we visually represent um, darkness on the screen as a kind of evil. A lot of that came from his work with other people. And he was always one of the first people to say, you know, this wasn't just me. There were lots of other people involved. But you can see it even before Citizen Kane, it was there. Oh, totally. And I definitely, as we go along, one of the things I do want to talk about is some of his theater work, um, which, I don't know, to me, I feel like often, especially this year, and I don't really know why, but in a lot of my like commentaries and critical work, I've wound up talking about the way the American dream impacts culture and how a lot of different subgenres like Westerns and things like that, and certainly film noir, really kind of focus 
on it as this sort of toxic negative force that deludes people into thinking they're going to get some kind of miracle that never really will happen. But to me, like talking about the inverse of that, Wells is somebody who I think is sort of the example of the American dream at its best in a way, because he just took very little and made so much with it. Well, so on that point, I also think it's good to point out that he's often seen as a figure where like the American, like the American dream as it decays, as it defers, as it falls apart. When in fact, Again, I feel like that's a distortion and misrepresentation of his career. He, um, when a lot of people talk about him, they talk about his later works as being lesser films, which I absolutely yeah, wrong. do not believe. F for Fake is my favorite Wells film, and I think one of the best films ever made. I mean, but, same thing with Touch of Evil, even. Right. It's like the last, of, so there's a lot of critical debate about when film noir as a movement ends, but in the sort of official academic way of thinking about it uh touch of evil from 1958 is like the last official film noir and it's one of the greatest right because of that but the point i'm getting at there is um the narrative of film of wells's life is that he was a brilliant he he was a genius who burned out but yeah what really occurred was you know he chose to operate outside of the studio system because he became so frustrated with the interference with studios taking movies away from him. And he went to other countries. He made movies the way he wanted to. And he was, I don't want to say wildly successful, but he was artistically successful in a way that others weren't. When I reference After Fake, it's because I think that film is highly influential and doesn't get enough credit for establishing like the pseudo documentary as the primary documentary format, which we see today, pretty much everything you see on Netflix is a subjective view of reality. And that shift starts with the documentary in the seventies and eighties with stuff like that. um, And then other people who were influenced by him. So he was like the successful figure his entire life. Yeah. And he also, I mean, I think what's so interesting is that, when people talk about Wells in his early days, he's sort of described as this like Hollywood wunderkind, but really he never was like Hollywood's darling. He basically saw an opportunity. He was given an opportunity really by RKO. And they said for, you know, the maybe one of you who doesn't know this story, they basically said, here's money, here's total creative freedom, make whatever you want. And he made Citizen Kane and the studio had a fucking meltdown and he was exactly what you said. He was really fucked over by Hollywood. And instead of letting it defeat him, he just went to Europe and made incredible films. And in that sense, he kind of reminds me of figures like Joseph Losey or Jules Dassin, who made some of the most interesting films of the forties and fifties. And then were driven out either by the studio system or by McCarthyism in the case of both, Dassin and Losey and were like fuck this and went to England and Europe and continued to make really incredible films and it's always fascinating to me and we'll have to do another episode around this theme in some way but it's always fascinating to me when directors are forced to leave their home countries and go kind of set up camp elsewhere 
because the films that they make in those countries have this weird way of sort of straddling two national cinemas. And I think you see that with people like Brobchik and Zhuavsky and Polanski who are forced to leave Poland and make films in France. You definitely see it with Wells. And we're going to talk about this more a little bit later in the context of something like The Trial, where it's like it doesn't quite feel like a European film, but it also it's like they're films made by outsiders. Totally. Um, One of the reasons I bring that up is because it's part of Wells was someone who was very good at self mythologizing and Hollywood is very good at destroying mythology or or trying to warping subvert it, yes. yeah warping it to suit its own so the idea of wells as a failed artist you know a genius who whose brilliance burned, burned out, out yeah fuck um, that it, it's just a misrepresentation and if you like look through any of the wells biographies you'll clearly see that it's not that he didn't wish he could have had more money to make movies it's just you know when you have people taking movies away from you like citizen kane the magnificent ambersons and yeah. doing what studios did he realized that th- Hollywood is not in the business of making art. It's in the business of making money. Yeah. And he's not against making money, but he doesn't want it to betray his purpose as an artist. Totally. And that's something that I think is really something that I admire a lot about him. I mean, when you think about, and we we can talk about this more a little bit later on when we get to something like Macbeth, but one of the things that I find so fascinating, oh, and there my dog is coughing, um, it's the ghost of Orson Welles in the background. Uh, something I find really fascinating about his early career is he was massively successful in the theater world. And that was where his early genius was kind of established. But one of the things that he did was he took a lot of the money that he made and funneled it back into his own projects. And there's this sort of joke that around the time of the Federal Theater Project, which I'll explain in in a bit if you don't know what that is, there's a joke that, like, Wells was the only person making a fortune off of uh, American theater, but he was also the only person, like, Losing private, <laughs> privately funding American theater at the same time. And I just, I love all of that about him. But maybe we should talk about his acting a little bit. I just want to mention sure. that... Sure, we to talk about. Well, I want to talk about Jane Eyre very briefly from 1943. And if you haven't seen it and you're somebody who's a fan of something like Hitchcock's Rebecca, it has a very similar vibe, except I'm sorry, but uh, I think Orson Welles is way sexier than Laurence Olivier. No offense to you, Olivier. And there are definitely parallels between the two because there are these really great Shakespearean actors. It's funny you say that because I have a link later when we get to a movie I picked and um, Olivier's later career choices. Ah, yes. <laughs> it's always interesting to see how those kinds of great sort of theatrical acting giants who become where cinema stars, the where they go. Yes. And they both made some interesting choices. I have to give them that. They did, but Olivier was somebody who kind of rested on his laurels a little bit, and I think he's an example of this idea that we have about how once people age, they can't change or they can't be innovative, and they're just stuck. He did some weird shit. I'll give him that. He did. And even, like, the pulpy stuff that he did still still somehow ended up with, like, Oscar nominations and shit, which is it's always wild. I mean, he's one of those actors who I both Wells 
and Olivier, I think, are actors who are in some totally insane projects and give some really ridiculous things some weight, which yes. is inter- it's a nice balance. But totally. So Jane Jane Eyre. Yeah. Yes, I think one of the interesting things about Wells is you know we were talking a little bit ago about his interest in German expressionism and how that shows up in his early theatrical work as a director and his cinematic work as a director, but it's also, I think these are roles that he really gravitated towards because this 1943 adaptation, which is directed by Robert Stevenson uh, and was produced by Wells, and I think Wells had a degree of creative control over it because he was fresh off Citizen Kane and everybody thought that he was the greatest thing since sliced bread, which of course he was. Uh, But he plays Mr. Rochester. If you don't know the story of Jane Eyre, I don't think we need to really repeat it because there's so much to talk about in this episode. But needless to say, it's one of the kind of foundational gothic novels of the, you know, mid 1800s written by Charlotte Bronte and Wells is great as as Mr. Rochester because he is kind of this like brooding romantic figure and I always thought the Mr. Rochester of the book was a little bit stodgy, which <laughs> Wells is not at all, especially not young Wells it's in 1943. It's you know, anyone to describe Wells as stodgy. Even later Wells, I still think was hot. He wasn't stodgy. He knew how to carry himself. He did. And the crazy thing about this particular adaptation is that the script was written by Aldous Huxley uh, <laughs> and by John Houseman. If you don't know John Houseman's name, you might know his name if you've watched Mank and you're yeah. now more familiar with some of those people. But Houseman was one of Wells' key early collaborators and they worked on theatrical products, theatrical projects a lot together. But also it's worth noting, I I said earlier, you know, if you like Hitchcock's Rebecca, Bernard Herrmann did the score for Jane Eyre. So it's like his career kind of kicks off with this interest in literary adaptations, adaptations of Shakespeare, and definitely darker, more gothic material that I think just really excited him, which speaking of dark material brings us to the first film that I think we're really going to talk about in depth which is the wonderful 1943 film noir, The Stranger, which is super underrated. Absolutely. So this was one of my picks because, I mean, when you think of Wells, you obviously think of Citizen Kane. If you're a film nerd, you might think of that for fake. There are these films that people talk about a lot. and Magnificent Ambersons. Yeah, I think Sam is right in the sense that a lot of people don't talk about The Stranger because it was a very commercial film. Um, it was really, a mainstream think, movie ground his gears at the time. Well, so, and we can get into this a little later. And like I said, I'm going to go off on a bit of a tangent with, you we, know, we love tangents. I here. always bring in conspiracy connections and I'll go into that a little bit later. And I connect it to a thing that Wells does in the movie, which is very interesting because even when he's making commercial art, he can't not, you know, poke and prod at yeah, people. He can't not be Wells. Um, but the stranger, if you have never seen it, it is not an adaptation of... <laughs> of the Camus novel? Of Camus novel. No. No. Uh, no one dies on a beach, thankfully, I guess. Uh, it's about a Nazi war criminal trying to escape prosecution by coming to the United States. And of course, Wells could only trust himself to play the Nazi. And he's so good. Yeah, it's... Well, it's weird because he's... I don't want to say he's a likable Nazi because that's that's a bad thing to say right well, now, but he is. Well, he's he supposed to be char- charismatic. Yeah. yeah, he's supposed to be likable and charismatic, but at the same time, 
he does have that kind of... He's also very evil. Yes, but he he has what I think is a really important gothic literary trope that you also see in Jane Eyre, you see it in Rebecca, this idea of a kind of alluring romantic male lead who you know has some horrible secret, right. but they've kind of entranced the female character so much that that particular woman is not really able to see clearly and she knows that something is off, but she doesn't quite know what it is. And that trope is used so well here. And I think it connects to the theme of this podcast well, because if you are a goth and you have been to goth shows, you are aware Nazis exist in the scene. Yep, and part of that is a lot of the art that was coming out in the 30s and 40s specifically had a he- like had a very heavy influence on goth culture the idea of the torch singer which was prominent in that era a lot of art coming out of germany in the run up to its nazification you know weimar weimar era germany had a heavy influence on goth culture so the idea that we would be talking about a movie with a secret nazi isn't too much of a surprise because within the goth subculture there are many secret nazis yeah, many people who wear their fascism on their sleeves in a both literal and figurative sense. But yeah, or people I, who treat it in like an ironic sense where it's like, I'm only into World War II history. Okay, that was a jab at Douglas from Death in June. How <laughs> dare you? Okay, I won't go down that path. But The Stranger um, is both written... Uh, no, it wasn't written. It was directed and stars Orson Welles. Yes. Um, it is about Welles, who is Franz Kindler, Nazi war criminal, sneaking into the United States, and he is being hunted by Edward G. Robinson. Because, of course, if you're making a film noir at this period, you pretty much have to have Edward G. Robinson in it in some way, and the two of them are fantastic. But I think what makes it super crazy is... He's a Nazi who goes into hiding as this sort of energetic, intelligent, like academic professor, yeah. basically. He also does a perfect American accent out of Germany, which is awesome. Yeah. So his secret identity in America is uh, Mr. Charles Rankin, uh, which is a very, I guess, bland American name, as bland as you could get. But well, I think Rankin is also a little bit of a nod to Shakespeare's wordplay around names, right. implying there's something rank. It's possible. In the state of Connecticut, if you will. Right. Um, so Wells is Franz Kindler, and he's in the U.S. Um, both to escape from Nazi Germany and the fall of uh, the aftermath of World War II, but also to establish a network to kick off the next great war. Um, because early in the film, he meets a man named Meineke. Meineke um, controlled a concentration camp, and in a discussion between the two in a park, which becomes a very important scene in the movie, Wells literally states, who would think to look for the notorious Franz Kindler? And I'll stay hidden till the day we strike again. There will be another war, asks Meineke, and Wells solemnly says, of course. So... Um, this plays into a theme that was happening at the time in other films. It wasn't like the only movie about Nazi Germany. Um, there was a lot of cinema being made in both um, America and Europe dealing with the aftermath of World War II, both the complicity of the United States to some degree or in well, some sense trying to absolve them. There, 
There was and there wasn't. I well, fe- so this movie, I think, is directly dealing with that, and I'll get to a specific scene in particular where I think that is what's happening, but mm-hmm. a lot of art coming out of this era, specifically Western art in um, America and England that was dealing with it, was this is where you start seeing the construction of, like, the Nazi as kind of just a vague evil, like the the yes. generic bad guy. And this is what's really frustrating is if you look at World War II films made during the war, they're very, very hesitant. Like it took Hollywood a while to start making anti-Nazi films, which enraged people like Wells and which certainly Charlie Chaplin. We'll get into it later. Yes. Um, and the tendency... Around this time and throughout the 40s and also throughout the 50s is to paint Nazis as this kind of vague evil and there's a reluctance to directly address what was actually happening at the concentration camps and the death camps and there's also a reluctance to name the predominance of victims as Jews, which is super frustrating. Which makes this movie interesting because this is Wells is both, you know, his peak is probably a pop artist. This was his big, I think his biggest commercial success. It's funny because it was definitely his most successful film. And the film that I think he thought was at the time was thought was his worst film. And it was his third movie as a director. And it is compared to his other movies, pretty straightforward as far as like the narrative goes like but it's, visually it's yeah. actually very fascinating and he does another thing where we are more familiar with this today where he puts himself into the role as a filmmaker activist where he directly confronts the horrors of world war ii and he directly names the villains and the victims so there is a scene where they're having dinner edward g robinson um orson wells and, and other, loretta young yeah. who plays his wife in the movie and, and at the point and at a certain point um robinson asks wells his thoughts on the war as an academic and i believe he is german like they know he's german correct yes they and they think he's just a refugee right so he asks he asks wells about karl marx and about karl marx being a german and um, Wells, as Kindler responds, but Marx wasn't a German, Marx was a Jew, which directly yeah. identifies um, us, like it directly identifies him as a villain because when people discuss, for example, Marx, it's not that he isn't, it's not known, it's not that it isn't known his family um, was Jewish, it's just that it's not, it doesn't tend to be a central component of his identity. So oh, I disagree. I, I do agree to an extent but when you have for example like even marx himself has been portrayed as anti-semitic with like the, sure. on the jewish question and um other writings of his so i don't necessarily think that maybe in that era specifically but and it may be something i'm reading now but the idea that he would erase the german identity for marx and simply oh, just yeah. call him a jew is something that immediately identifies him as a villain well so this is complicated because i do think There is a tendency and talking about Judaism as a race is a really complicated thing because, you know, it's a religion, it's a cultural identity, and it's certainly an ethnic identity because of the, you know, concentration of Jewish communities in Eastern and Central Europe. Like there are certain genetic traits in common, Um, but when you hear people who are 
either openly anti-Semitic as in the case of this film and the yes. character we're talking about. I do think people talk about certain writers and certain musicians and definitely philosophers as having a predominantly Jewish identity, even if they are, yeah, even if they're also, you know, German or Austrian. Right. So when I say that it's not necessarily like always connected that Marx is Jewish, like it is to the extent that, for example, like Bolshevism and Socialism are often yes. called a Jewish a problem. Jewish problem. And I say yeah. this as someone who openly identifies as a socialist, even though I am not Jewish. I am aware of these things. I've heard these things in various circles, specifically oh, totally. people insulting me or people I know. Well, I mean, even if you think about the show trials of the 50s under Stalin, yes. the people who were targeted were largely high-ranking Jewish communists because there was this feeling that the party had started to shift and become, quote-unquote, too Jewish. And they might betray the party because they owe an allegiance to... Or corrupt the right. party or... So, yes. In, all I kinds of insanity. That but that scene in particular, I think, is an important scene in the film because it obviously... It, so Robinson has an idea that Wells, that Rankin is Kindler, but that's the scene that really confirms it to him because there's a phone call later where he openly yeah. states that that's what gives it away. Yeah, and it's also definitely to your point, it's the way he says it. He doesn't say, oh, he's a German Jew. He says, oh, no, he's a Jew. Right, no, he denies he his like German heritage a, and like states a, that he's a Jew. A dirty word. Right. So the movie itself is fascinating because it um, visually is actually very... Dynamic. Dynamic, that's a great word for yeah. it. Um, it also introduces a theme that we'll see in a film that we talk about later, which is Clocks which is, seems to be a recurring theme in Wells' films. Yes. He has a lot of visual tropes that he returns to from movie to movie. and Clocks um, is a big one. Clocks is a big one. He improvises the line about um, cuckoo clocks in a later movie that we'll talk about. Um, but even just like the use of shadows, the, um, the way people are dressed, which I know was common for the era, but like the long coats, everything that you see in this movie can definitely, you can co connect it directly to... Modern goth culture, the way people dress, the things that they're into. Sam's dog again. Yeah, so I think also something to talk about, and, and you did bring this up a little bit, but this idea that people at the time were not making war films that directly confronted the horrors of the Holocaust. And in terms of commercial American cinema and probably actually in terms of cinema anywhere in the world, Wells was one of the very first people to do that with The Stranger. And you have things like the German Rebel film, which does that to different degrees starting in like 47 with movies like uh, Marriage in the Shadows. But those pretty quickly become propaganda and they start to do what you were talking about earlier which is mythologize nazism and mythologize the war which is a huge topic that i write about all the time that is too much to go into here but one of the really important things about the stranger is it's the very first yes. hollywood movie to have actual concentration camp footage and this is the second important scene i want to discuss yeah it's and it is horrifying like there are a lot of really great film noir movies with scenes that are really suspenseful and even sometimes borderline scary or disturbing but I think there's no sequence in any film noir that's more disturbing than the scene 
where they do you want to explain what happens? Right. So um, Edward G. Robinson decides to screen footage from a uh, concentration camp to just literally show what is happening. And this serves a second function. Uh, It's horrible. It it serves a second, like kind of like a Wellesian trope of a film within a film because of what he, you're literally watching something actually that happened. And it's real, like it's real footage taken from newsreels that Wells had worked on. And it's projected onto a screen as Wells. Uh, it's Wells and Robinson, correct? Well, no. So basically, no. It's sorry. It's Wells's. Uh, Wells it's Wells's wife. wife. Yeah, so it's so, basically what Robinson right. is doing is he says to Loretta Young, "I know that your husband is this war criminal," and she she's like refuses to believe it. Yeah, she won't believe it. He's very charming. He's very good. I think this also follows a scene where he lies to her about murdering Moneyke. Totally. And it's something that I think you see show up in like 90s erotic thrillers where you have this kind of like sexy, manipulative, romantic male figure who is using emotions and romance to kind of pull the wool over someone's eyes. And Edward G. Robinson, instead of like waiting around for her to realize it, and there's this awesome scene with a dead dog that is involved, but... (sighs) Poor dog. Poor pupper. Cover your ears, dog. Don't listen to this. Uh, The way that he convinces her how horrible it is is by showing her this fucking concentration camp footage. It's brutal. So this is, I guess, where I'm going to have to go off on my tangent because this is where I wanted to bring it up when we discussed this. Um, The function of this movie, it does a number of things. So um, Wells' wife serves two functions in the movie. Um, When Robinson shows her the film, it's literally to convince her, but she's the audience. She's the audience. Yeah. And this is important because in the run up to world war two, um, there were many people in America who did not want to join the, uh, uh, the allied war effort for a variety of reasons. There were people obviously who opposed it for moral reasons, but, um, the largest group of anti-war critics were groups like the German American Bund who had obvious pro Nazi sympathies. They held explicitly, Nazi positions. They openly supported Adolf Hitler. Um, there's the infamous 1939 rally at Madison Square Garden. So gross. But more... Involving like right. senators and congressmen. Exactly. And but even more relevant, there were openly fascist groups. And when I say fascist groups, I mean explicitly fascist. There's no equivocating on this, like the America First Committee, led by people like Charles Lindbergh. Yes, spoke you got to Google America First. They are disgusting. Who spoke in like very vague terminology, but they existed specifically to muddy the waters about you, the U.S. joining the Allied war effort. So this served um, a specific function both So those groups had dissolved by the time the U.S. entered the war, either because the U.S. government forced them to with the German-American Bund or the America First Committee, who just had to. They just kind of dissolved on their own. Yeah, they kind of faded into the shadows. But they were still alive in America, and many people... They still are. ...post-World War II did not believe the concentration camps were real. Um, So you essentially had, like, secret Nazis hiding in the United States, which... um, It's awful, and I do think... You could watch The Stranger as part of a loose group of movies that looks at that theme, like Hitchcock's yes. Sabotage and um, definitely Fritz Lang's uh, Ministry of Fear. Which are very interesting, intelligent versions of that. But what grew out of this was this idea of um, 
secret Nazis, like this idea of the Nazi as like an all-consuming evil who was trying to invade culture. So you see it up through even today. So like you have really bad movies like Apt Pupil, Stephen King adaptation, oh, where Brian Singer literally fetishizes like Nazi, like Nazi, I don't know what to he call also, that play. He also fetishizes the... I don't I don't know that we want to call it the art of grooming, but yes. he fetishizes a much older man in a position of power grooming a younger man, and it is gross. But the more offensive recent example of this to me is actually Captain America 2, The Winter Soldier, where you have the I Nazi... I kind of like that movie. You have the Nazi analog, Hydra, but it's literally about like this outside evil infiltrating American society and causing all of the problems in their... Which is what happened. CIA version uh, their cia analog shield but actually i want to like argue against this because okay. i'm ready for nazis it. did not need to sneak into the united states no, most they of didn't. the nazis that came here and most of the nazis that escaped prosecution at the nuremberg trials did so under the aegis of the united states government yeah it's horrible i mean it's I feel like anytime I get into conversations about this with people, they look at you like that can't be right. And you're and like, so but it is. And this is why I wanted to pick the stranger because so jokingly last episode, I mentioned Operation Gladio. Um, it, are you, are you going to talk about Odessa? Well, so I'll bring up Odessa. So yes. Gladio is the real version of Odessa. Like there were groups like, so the idea of Odessa well, as Odessa's like a secret Nazi the network, European version it's really. The, well, so and Gladio South is American. European. Yeah. So Odessa, kind of became this big idea of secret Nazi networks that were established by the Nazis post-World War II. Which there were. There were versions of it. It just wasn't to the extent that it wasn't as organized as people argue. Yeah. And there's been lots of books written on this since. Um, well, you can I mean, see it's it. the sort of shit where, like, if you know anything about Klaus Barbie, he... And I was going to bring him up. Yep. Yeah, it's like... If they were better funded, they probably would have been more organized. So they were actually funded, oddly enough, by the U.S. government. So it's disgusting. to that point, Gladio, a lot of people will tell you it wasn't real. And part of the problem with that is because there isn't a lot of writing in English. There's a book by, I believe, uh, Daniel Ganser called NATO Secret Armies, which um, is very good. But, you know, there's a lot of controversy around it. Some people argue it isn't entirely accurate. Um, but he cites a lot of research and investigative journalism from places like Germany, where a lot of this was written about post-World War II. It yeah. just wasn't converted into English because it didn't serve the interests of our government. Yeah. If you read up about some of the Nazi hunters operating in the 60s and 70s, 70s often, yes, like the Wiesenthal's also with the assistance of like Mossad and, you know, uh, intelligence organizations like that it's crazy the stuff that they managed to uncover and the super frustrating thing for me is that in the 70s and 80s there are a number of trials intended to prosecute guards of concentration camps and particularly the the like major death camps of which there are seven there were trials in the 60s and 70s for guards. Purposes. Yeah, and it basically was like, look, we're doing things because Adenauer's government in the 50s in West Germany really just said, okay, there are millions of former Nazis and former Wehrmacht officers and soldiers, and we're just going to fold them back in. It's fine. So about that, um, 
So Gladio was a project that happened post-World War II because the U.S. government and specifically the intelligence agencies in this country, most prominently the CIA, wanted Which to shift focus. was the OSS during the war. Right. They wanted to shift focus from the Nazis to communism, and communism became our all-consuming evil. A great evil. evil. Um, so you've probably heard of Operation Paperclip. And it was a real thing, obviously. It transported mm -hmm. somewhere between 1,600 to 2,000 German scientists to the U.S., uh, many of whom were Nazis like Werner von Braun. But um, one this of was... Who, one of whom I'm related to by marriage, but that's <laughs> a story for another day. This was done in secret because even though many people in the U.S. held overtly fascist sympathies, they did not want to be openly associated with fascists. So frequently you had situations where people who were people who the intelligence community was trying to bring into the U.S. for Operation Paperclip or its successor, Project 63, their identities were revealed. One of the best examples of this was um, Kurt Blom, who ran the Nazis' biochemical weapons program and then escaped prosecution at Nuremberg because the U.S. government intervened on his behalf. It's so horrible. It makes me, it's like I know all of this, but it makes me angry every time I hear about it. Right. So he was supposed to come to the U.S. as part of Project 63, a successor to Paperclip. But the Boston Globe revealed um, the identity of his collaborator, Walter Schrieber. And this became a big incident between both the U.S. and Germany. And Blom's visa was denied. But instead of just ending it there, they shifted him to West Germany at Camp King. Now, when I say that the U.S., funded fascism, funded secret Nazis. Um, they did bring them to the United States, but by and large, most of them existed in Europe, specifically in Germany, in the space where most of them lived. Yeah. The best example of this being Gladio. Um, there was a group in the early 50s. Um, the initials were BDJ, and I'm going to butcher the pronunciation of this, but Bund Deutscher Jugend. Bund Deutscher Jugend. Jugend. Um, it's loosely translates to League of German Youth. But yep, this that's is what it means. Deceptive because all of the members were actually in their 40s because they were ex-Nazis. Um, it was an They were Jugends at one point. Yeah. <laughs> it was an explicitly right-wing group, um, which the recruiter and trainer of this group was Klaus Barbie, um, the butcher yep. of Leon. Yeah. Klaus Barbie is horrible and if you want to have a bad, if you want to make your, you know, bad 2020 end worse, go read a bunch about Klaus Barbie. It just, and don't. part of what I think makes this conversation so frustrating is like when you hear about the U S government taking German scientists and saying, Hey, come work for us. It can sound much more benign than it is. I mean, you have movies yeah. like Carol Reed, and we're gonna—I love Carol Reed. We're gonna talk about him in a little bit when we talk right. about the Third Man. But you have movies like Night Train to Munich, which take this idea that, and definitely there are Hitchcock movies that do this too. You have this idea that okay, maybe these scientists are important because they're coming up with all of these innovations that will help our society. When but, really it's just about how to kill people. Better. Right. Well, and what the, what these movies do, especially night train to Munich, where it's like this, this Czech scientist that they're trying to rescue from a concentration camp. It sort of paints them as these sort of innocent pawns who have fallen into the wrong government at the wrong time and they're just trying to do their jobs. Nope. But in reality, 
a lot of these people who were specifically brought over by what you're talking about were people who experimented on Jews in concentration camps yes. and experimented on communists and or other political... Them in the case of Barbie. Yes, and by experimented on, I mean sometimes they would experiment on dead bodies, but often these were living concentration camp inmates. Correct. I don't want to get too far into this because obviously you can talk about a lot, but basically it was later found in uh, 1952 that the U.S. government had been supplying the uh, BDJ and its paramilitary arm, the TD, the technical service, with 50,000 50, Deutschmark a month. Um, it was found when they were discovered um, they had a kill list. Now, this was argued at the time that they said they were doing this to, in case of Soviet invasion, they were going to target prominent German socialists. But most of the names were actually members of the Social Democrats, um, the largest center-left party um, in Germany. So I mention this because I want to argue against the idea that Nazis ever had to infiltrate anything. No, they didn't. Because the U.S. government was more than willing to support them. And in fact, the policies of what they did with like the BTJ and Gladio actually influences pretty much all of our foreign policy today, the way you see the CIA yeah. support of the Contras, the Mujahideen, if you see how they actually trained like ex-Mexican special forces who went on to form the Los Zetas cartel. Um, the way we dealt with Nazis, it, rather than Nazis infiltrating the U.S., we just sent them out into the world to create more evil. So this idea that, like, yeah. Nazis ever had to infiltrate American society is just so, like, I'm so offended by it. So when I see art that still, like, regurgitates that idea, and that's why I bring up the Captain America movie. Sure. Because it's just a very dumbed-down version of this. It just, you know, I don't know, it offends me to some endless degree. Yeah, it it is super offensive because... It but this is also why I like The Stranger, because... Wells was very much against that. He wasn't trying to, he wasn't, that's not what he was doing, even if he unintentionally influenced that to a degree. Um, he was literally trying to force the American public to look at the horrors of the Second World War um, because many in America still denied they had existed. Sure, and you still, and this is one of my like things, that this is like a hill that I am prepared to die on and I know that people disagree with me. And maybe you do, but the fact that there are still in 2020 when we have still living survivors as well as just a mountain of evidence that there are still Holocaust deniers. Like in Europe, yes. you could be prosecuted for publicly stating that the Holocaust didn't happen. And I think that's a good thing. Like in general, I don't like the idea of thought police and people telling you how to think. Right. But in the case of genocide, if you're saying that it's not real and it didn't happen, then you deserve to at least have to go to jail or be fined right. or like these horrible things happened. And no, I mean, I'm, I'm there with you. I'm obviously like the conspiracy guy. So clearly I'm I into like some weird shit, but I'm also like, you can't deny the Holocaust and you see it from various people do directions, even like, the Soviet end with the denial of like the Homodor or the Japanese side where they're like, well, they we just kind of China it. wasn't that bad. Yeah, they Come just on, kind of guys. Which, if you really want to go down a rabbit hole, check out the biochemical weapons program of the Japanese in World War II. Yeah, go, they collaborated go watch with the Men Nazis. Behind the Sun. Yeah, Kurt Blom collaborated with the leader of Jap Japan's program. Yeah, and and so this also, I think, 
really, it's not actually a tangent that you went on. I no, think, I mean, th this is why, this was one of the reasons I specifically picked the movie and I may end up using this in something I can write about the subject because I think there's a lot to explore there, especially the mythologizing of U.S. opposition to the Nazis when it was more like a begrudging we have to rather we're than like, we okay. wanted to. And I mean, I can go off on further tangents about like Fred Koch, the patriarch of the Koch brothers, family who built an oil refinery for the Nazis in 1935, well after it was clear oh, yeah. they were bad. Or I like mean, they built their first concentration camp in 1934. So Prescott it's not Bush, like who worked with Fritz Thiessen um, to try and hide Nazi gold. It was every aspect of like our culture. It wasn't just like the intelligence agency. Everyone in America, to yes. some degree, either I don't want to say everybody, but like many people in America, Big denied business, World War II. Especially, yes, yeah, and so Hugo that's Boss. yes, and that is why. I mean, we could literally have done a single podcast episode on this, but we would just <laughs> get progressively angrier as the episode went on. It'd just be me throwing out like conspiracy threads, like, "Hey, look this up. Look this up. Look this up." Yeah, but so that's why I think, especially in 1946, something like The Stranger is so it important. important. And it was so daring of Wells, to like transgressive even, to include concentration camp footage in a mainstream movie. And I just want to, this is like a really famous quote of his that I just want to read because he was so angry about it. And obviously lived through it, so therefore is angrier than either of us. Correct. But he talks about how important the newsreels were. And he was somebody who was obviously very conscious of art and public media and thought a lot about the impact of propaganda films. And so he sort of gives, he, he talks about the importance of the newsreels, which I think gives an explanation for why he included it in The Stranger. He said, they make a point no man can miss. The war has strewn the world with corpses, none of them very nice to look at. The thought of death is never pretty, but the newsreels testify to the fact of quite another sort of death, quite another level of decay. This is a putrefaction of the soul, a perfect spiritual garbage. For some years now, we have been calling it fascism. The stench is unendurable. And so this direct connection between fascism and genocide is something that I don't think people were making enough at the time. And no. to your point, one of the really, really frustrating things is if you look at the OSS, uh, <laughs> we can get into a whole discussion of the Dulles brothers. Well, the OSS does some really amazing things during world war II, especially in the way that they work with, British intelligence and the sort of free French, uh, French resistance intelligence. Yeah. And there's this really horrible shift in 1945 when they basically, it, it's like, not that they didn't do bad things during World War II because they certainly did. Everybody but did to an extent. I everyone mean, There's did. the famous Vonnegut example about the bombing of Dresden. and Oh yeah, the bombing of Dresden was horrible and unnecessary. And really serves to not to go on this tangent for very long, but the allied bombing of Germany at a time when Germany wanted to surrender and was basically over Nazis, it really just made the German people so desperate that they had to rely on the only figures of authority they had. So it's like it pushed them back closer to the Nazis. Yeah. Like it served 
no purpose whatsoever. Well, I mean, it served a purpose, like, so the extent of, for example, like, the dropping of the bombs in Nagasaki and Hiroshima, like, it served a purpose. People in the military wanted to test to see, like, what they, the capabilities, their capabilities. Yeah. So it didn't necessarily, like, there's this narrative, for example, with Dresden or um, the atomic bombs, this was necessary, when in fact, like, it probably would have gone the same way, even if that didn't happen. Sure. It just, it's really still kind of soul crushing to read about. And when you see those extremes to also at the same time, understand all the things you've been saying, which is that, you know, fascism was and still is is alive and well in the United States. And one of the things that is so frustrating for me is I think in the twenties and thirties, both in central Europe and in the United States, you see this sort of glimmer of hope that socialism has really taken root and can change people's lives for the better. And it does in a lot of ways. And then you have fascist leaning, fascist sympathizing or directly fascist big business come in and use propaganda to paint the socialists as evil to kill them, imprison them. using anti-Semitic tropes. Yeah, it's... Other things that we're more familiar with now, but maybe weren't as like people weren't as cognizant of at the time. Yeah, it's a whole thing that makes, I think, both of us froth at the mouth. And you still see it, like, it recurs today. And we don't have to get into a political discussion of that. But, like, you see that idea of big business siding with fascism over the public good. And I think that's something that makes The Stranger feel really relevant in a weird way. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't call it a socialist film. I think Wells was definitely sympathetic to, if not socialism, like, some of the ideas of socialism, especially totally. later in his life, I believe he was a critic of the Vietnam War publicly, if I remember yep. right. Um, and he held many positions that would have maybe put him on a watch list somewhere. Yeah, it, it is amazing that he wasn't driven out by McCarthyism, but I think he was like too big of a public figure and right. was already kind of like, fuck off, Hollywood. I mean, if you make a movie like uh, Citizen Kane, you're definitely not a capitalist. No, and... I think that also sort of goes back to what I was saying earlier about how like he made all this money and was happy to spend it on things on like art. food and on art good and stuff and travel. But he didn't just sort of like amass wealth. He fed it right back into the socialist federal theater project, yeah. which like you want to talk about that a little bit now. Yeah, I, I think and there's a good goth link with at least, you know, the voodoo one. Since oh, we've discussed voodoo previously. And that's definitely one of the things that I, I do want to talk about. So one of my most favorite subjects ever is the Works Progress Administration, which is something that started in the 30s. It was part of the New Deal, started by FDR, and I think is one of the the greatest kind of public art funded examples of something that we could do all the time in the United States and we don't because I mean we're we had it run by fascists degrees off and on but sure. not I mean it started as a government thing and then it became like a thing for private philanthropy but for different reasons yes but like many many other countries around the world have national arts endowments I that they should yeah um, we do too but ours is it's chronically it ba- underfunded. It basically doesn't exist. And constantly attacked by evangelicals for perceptions of like, you know, Jewish is influence this, or yeah. gay influence in particular beginning in the 80s because totally. of Robert, Ma- Robert Maplethorpe and senators like Jesse Helms who would totally. consistently attack it. Well, so in the 30s, 
the New Deal, which for those of you who don't know, look up the New Deal, <laughs> super socialist. If you don't know the New Deal, like, come on, man. I mean, I have conversations with people all the time who have a lot of confusion about World War II and seem to think that, like, people didn't know the Nazis were bad until 1939. And it's <laughs> like, dude, Hitler God became chancellor in 33. They built their first concentration camp in 34, which was also... Goddamn millennials, too. Yeah. So goddamn boomers, goddamn everybody, goddamn everyone. If you don't know about the New Deal, look it up. It's amazing. But one of the things under the Works Progress Administration, which was meant to sort of enrich American life in many different ways, not only in terms of funding the arts, uh, but also just kind of infrastructure like building roads and different kinds of systems to make life better. And one of my favorite parts of the Works Progress Administration is the Federal Theater Project. And the Federal Theater Project was ultimately shut down by people like Senator McCarthy. Who hated communism. Yes, because a lot, there was this perception that a lot of the artists working under the Federal Theater Project, not only actors and set designers, but directors and writers, people like John Houseman and Orson Welles, who they worked goddamn communists. Yes, that they were communists. And part of the problem is Haley Flanagan, who's a super fascinating woman. Um, she spent some time in Russia, which was very common for like well-traveled artists of the period to go back and forth between places like Russia, Soviet Union, um, and also places like Mexico to build collaborations with other artists and to kind of figure out how their national systems worked. And there's this really funny play called Revolt of the Beavers, which is like a children's musical about beavers who kind of overthrow big business. And Revolt of the Beavers <sighs> is like one of the tipping points that ended the Federal Theater Project because it was seen as being blatantly communist. Like imagining there being a Senate hearing over a fucking children's musical theatrical experience about beavers. Well, I mean, the funny thing about that is like, they think that artists are communists and I guess to an extent, many of them probably were, yes. but it wasn't because of like some evil force infiltrating American society. It's because most artists traditionally good artists are like literally that starving artist image like a yeah. lot of them just don't have money because they're pursuing a career where it's very hard to be financially successful even in sure. that era um it was hard so like they saw poverty firsthand um one of my favorite examples outside of that would be like the federal writers project yeah. where lots of people would go to literally the poorest places in the country one of my favorite writers jim thompson ran the oklahoma branch of it for a while and they you, you found it in their writing because literally they saw suffering and so the people who would oppose this are literally just like the biggest fucking ghouls you can think of. They are. They're horrible. Yeah. So it's people like oh. McCarthy, Jesse Helms, people who are like, like, I, I, so I understand when people use phrases like the enemies of America, it's usually right wing. But I want to like take that back in a sense yeah, because, because those they're people the are enemies literally, of America. They're literally like they hate America. And if you want, if you look and at the rhetoric, hate poor people, they hate black people. Right. If you look at the rhetoric, they hate everything about America. I know it's not popular to say America is melting pot. But, like, they even hate that idea of assimilation. They literally want, like, this which one vision of America, which is just, like, 
it's white something that Protestants. Never it never existed. America was always, I don't want to say it was always a diverse place, but it was always a place where many different people came together from many different places. There was never an American identity. It was groups of people coming from different places and creating something. Yeah, and when it was just fucking white people from England, they tended to not do so well. Like that time they all cannibalized each other in Jamestown. <laughs> but, yeah. but So but, I, this point yes. about Wells, yeah. So Wells, I think, is somebody who put, you know, a ton of his personal money Into made art. from theater and especially made from his work in radio because in the 30s, he, you know his voice is so like I could listen to him talk forever and not hear anyone else's voice ever again and be happy. And so he was super successful. But that idea of diversity too, did you want to talk about Voodoo Macbeth oh, a little that's, bit? Oh, that's where I'm so going. So this is like where the idea of Wells as an activist, like it always found its way into his art in some way. He would champion people who would not otherwise have an opportunity because of either societal norms or because of just overt racism. Yeah, which he thought was insane, and understandably so. So one of the branches of, of the Federal Theater Project was geared towards black theatrical productions, and that was something started by, or ran by John Houseman, the producer that I keep talking about who worked very closely with Wells. And one of the things that Wells did was something that was a big passion project for him especially in the first two or three decades of his career were and actually you know what throughout his entire career because if you think about things like chimes at midnight like yeah. he loved adapting shakespeare and he often did really interesting things with those adaptations like that again poking and prodding yes, people. that were really transgressive and that often enraged the more kind of like conservative theater community who were like, you're ruining Shakespeare. And one of the, the very first way that he ruined Shakespeare <laughs> on, on like a big public scale. So this, like this was not his first production. So I don't want to give that impression. He, from his like late teens and early twenties, started directing and starring in theatrical productions around the U.S. and also in Europe. And so, like, this wasn't, you know, his first time at the rodeo, but he organized this and directed this production of Macbeth that he called Voodoo Macbeth with a totally black cast, which was the first time that that had ever happened. And he was so successful with it. And I'm talking about like somebody at a super racist time who gave opportunities to black people in theater on every level, not just acting, but actual crew. set designers and crew members. And it, it really is an incredible achievement. And the play... In opened in New York at the time he was working a lot with the Federal Theater Project in New York I should specify right it took place in Harlem correct? yes and but it wound up touring around the country and was really successful this is also around the same time and this is a really fascinating story that you should definitely look up um, it's also the same time that he and Houseman directed this production of a musical Brechtian communist play called Cradle Will Rock. And it caused fucking chaos. 
He was, uh, what's the phrase? Lay on fond. An enfant terrible? Yes. He was definitely that. He sure was. And that's where, you know, actually that's probably what he was as opposed to a wunderkind. Yes, definitely. But I think Hollywood tried to paint him as like, oh, we're giving money to this genius. And he was like, yeah, you are. And you're going to regret it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And um, he did take them indeed for a ride. He absolutely did. But I think it would be amazing if we could see a film adaptation of Voodoo Macbeth, which... It's a shame that it couldn't have been made in that era because it would have been interesting to see what he would have come up with. Uh, Yeah, and I mean, I could go on a whole different tangent about what Hollywood forced, what sorts of roles Hollywood forced black people into in the 30s and 40s. And I've written about this a fair amount in the context of Val Luton's horror films because he actually provided some interesting roles for black actors that were kind of outside the sort of repulsive norm but that is they may be openly like they may have on the surface seemed like traditional roles but he gave them the kind of depth that they wouldn't have otherwise had definitely or like more speaking parts and and things like that um but that is a tangent for another episode and we did talk about some of this a little bit in our blackula double feature um and hopefully we will return to it again because we really should do a ganya and hess episode yep but he did finally able, or he was finally able to adapt Macbeth in 1948, which is one of my favorite films of all time, and it is goth as fuck. <laughs> it's incredibly expressionistic. It's his his aim was to make an adaptation that was a cross between Wuthering Heights, which if you're you live under a rock or, or you're goth. 20 is one of, like, the foundational gothic novels. Um, so we want to do a cross between Bride of Frankenstein and Wuthering Heights, and I think he totally pulls it off. And one of the things he did that really upset people at the time is he gave a bigger role to the witches, and he he has some really, really incredible cinematography where... Wells he, was a spooky dude. Yeah, and Macbeth really is... Not like people talk about this in the context of Roman Polanski's Macbeth, and they make a great double feature because they are very different. They're both at heart horror movies, which not all adaptations of Macbeth are. They and, should be. There's all kinds of awesome murder. And oh, they totally should be. Cool shit. But you know, I know we were just talking about this idea of kind of socialism and communism and how that kind of tied into this episode is a secret socialist episode it is i don't think i was gonna say communist but i'm not a communist i don't think there's anything secret about the socialism of this episode fuck tankies (laughs) um it's also a movie about a violent revolution where someone is overthrowing the government (laughs) and that's what makes it so fascinating is it's like it is this tale of sort of revolution gone nightmarish right while at the same time looking at violence when it's necessary and the toll that violence takes on people and at the time not many people were really adapting Shakespeare for Hollywood I think this uh, version of Macbeth was only the fourth Hollywood Shakespeare movie and so he's more Spider-Man movies in a year's time now that you do I know (laughs) <laughs> Don't make me cry. Um, 
But he, you also have to consider that he's competing with somebody like Laurence Olivier, who's doing these really kind of classic, well-loved adaptations of Shakespeare. Right. And instead, you get this, like, upstart. And he wasn't really young anymore in 1948. Not like... Wells or Olivier? Wells. Wells, I mean. Um, but he is sort of saying, okay, I'm not going to do this traditional... Right adaptation because it's Wells and he never wanted to do a traditional adaptation. Instead, I'm going to make this like buck wild gothic horror movie about these fucking witches making voodoo dolls. And it really looks like the closest to a German expressionist horror movie. I mean, yeah, even if you look at um, Olivier's non Shakespearean films, like stuff that would have been set in that era, like Beckett has that feel of like a very traditional Shakespearean production, the way the film is presented. Um, it plays out in a very like traditional format. So the idea that Wells would be changing things up with his presentation isn't surprising. But what I wanted to say about um, Olivier earlier is that he did two Nazi films later. Um, Boys from Brazil and Marathon Man. And Boys where from he Brazil plays is another Odessa file movie. Odessa movie, yes, where he literally... So in that movie, he basically plays a uh, Wiesenthal analog. And then in Marathon Man, he plays the secret Nazi. So I just wanted to bring that back around, but to the point Covering about Wells. all the bases. Yeah. Well, so Wells made those weird late career choices, too. He starred in all kinds of bizarre shit. I brought up Necromancy before because I think that's one of the weirder ones where it's overtly spooky I guess you could make a case for uh, necromancy being goth. I don't know if I would, but I feel like that's something like you might do, Sam, because you mo you're more appreciative of that movie than I am. I feel like it's a sort of movie that would appeal to people with it's goth interests. So yeah. there, there's that Macbeth link. Maybe he was like, I did witches in Macbeth, so I'll do necromancy. <laughs> sure, and he also has um, Black Magic, which right. we don't have to talk about too much, but that was something that he co-directed right around the same time. But one of the like real achievements of Macbeth, I think, is he pretty much made a low-budget Shakespeare movie, especially compared right. to what Olivier was doing with things like Hamlet and uh, the Henry plays. And so he uses these really stark visuals. He has these really kind of like artificial-looking sets, which look like they're, they came from Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Right. And he does so much, like... You should definitely watch it and pay attention to what he does with the sound design because he has all these like creepy animal sounds and all this like booming and knocking. And it's one of my favorite uses of Shakespeare's language. That why is that? Just because of the way that he it's like he knows Shakespeare. Yeah. And I feel like there are many, many Shakespeare adaptations at this point on film and a lot of them are just kind of like running through the motions or they're doing these kind of very different things like that Romeo and Juliet adaptation. That's like a very sort of pop culture thing. Oh, Wells is no Baz Luhrmann. Yeah, no, <laughs> thank God for that. But I mean, Baz Luhrmann has his place. Hey, I actually appreciate that one because it's bug fuck insane. Well, so something that Wells felt really strongly about that I also feel strongly about is 
this idea that Shakespeare and theater in general, but definitely since that we're talking about Shakespeare right now, is that he should be for everyone. It should be it relevant. Yes, it shouldn't be something inaccessible where you to have to... To the point where Wells is not stodgy. Exactly. He's not stodgy, and he shows you that, yeah, okay, maybe these words don't make sense to you when you look at them the first time because they're sort of archaic and you don't see this kind of vocabulary. But he he tells you and shows you what everything means, and he shows you how terrifying Macbeth is. Well, it shouldn't be like this thing that calcifies or crystallizes. It shouldn't just be we present this thing this one way. If people want to reinterpret art, you can often find new meaning because that's the point of art. I'm not saying, I'm not going to, you know, do the whole death of the author, all art is subjective because it's a misreading of that. But like the idea that, you know, art can be meaningful to people in different ways and it finds ways, the best art finds ways to be continually relevant as time goes on. And Shakespeare has found that because a lot of Shakespeare is amazing. So much Shakespeare continues to be really relevant. And even I think, my favorite, Titus yeah. Andronicus. Titus Andronicus is great and I love it, but it is <laughs> Every time not that, his best like, play. So um, we did want to move on from that, though, uh, because yeah, I know we've I been could, on this for a little bit. I so could the talk next about one this forever. I wanted to move on to, and this actually sort of ties into The Stranger, is The Third Man. Yes. Which is which, another one that he's very much known for, even though he didn't himself direct. And Carol Reed, as I was saying earlier when I briefly mentioned Night Train to Munich, Carol Reed is one of the great directors of the period. And if you're not familiar with his films... Watch this one. It's a great primer. It's... Yeah. I mean... So this one involves... So in The Stranger, you had Wells versus Edward G. Robinson, whereas here you have Wells versus Joseph Cotton. At Joseph Cotton's peak when he still had a swagger. Joseph Cotton had swagger when he was in fucking Baron Blood. Get out of here. He still has swagger. I don't he's, know if I'd say that. He still has swagger now and he's dead. This isn't quite, you know, shadow of a doubt, Joseph Cotton, where he's just oh, like... that's the best Joseph Cotton. It's close, though. He has a bit of a swagger here. But so. what makes him great here is sort of like what you were talking about in terms of Loretta Young and The Stranger. It's Joseph Cotton basically is the audience. I mean, like, it's a love story a between Joseph Cotton and Orson Welles. It is. Which Even is though there is a love shit. interest, but... But um, she's like a love... And this is something that, f- that happened in Hey, don't film. talk about... I think she's Czech in the movie. Don't talk about my Czech queen. Uh, Alita Volley? I mean, I think they portray her as Czech oh, yeah. in the movie. Not in real life. Uh... I mean, if you are a horror movie fan and you've seen Suspiria, you fucking know Alita Valley, but she is one of the queens of European cinema. But no, I wasn't going to talk about her badly. I was just going to say within film noir, there is kind of an interesting romance, an interesting trope where a female character is used as a surrogate in a love triangle where the, it's not a genuine love triangle. And I think those definitely exist in cinema, but in the case of the third man and a lot of film noir, it's, you'll often have this female character who is just sort of a symbol for one male character pining after another male character. And that is totally the case here. I mean, there's definitely a feeling of betrayal on Cotton's part. And then by the end of the film, Wells's part um, with the way the relationship has gone between the two. So the movie begins with um, Cotton's Holly Martins going to Vienna to meet his friend, but he finds out that his friend Harry Lyme has died. 
Or did he? So he attends his funeral very confused. From there, he meets a Major Calloway. And this is one of my favorite lines in the movie uh, when they're introducing themselves. He says, listen, Calloway. Uh, he says, listen, Callahan. Calloway, I'm English, not Irish. Just weird, like, racism going on all over the place. There's also, I think, The Third Man is a really great movie. If you're not familiar with the immediate after war period, that, which we've been right. talking about, it's a really great movie to give you a good primer because Europe was basically divided up between the Allied powers and this movie it takes place in Vienna and sort of shows how the city is divided and even though these different countries and right now we're talking about uh, England, France, the United States and the Soviet Union, uh, the way that they kind of dislike each other and come up against each other and there's just like tension everywhere Holly Martins goes. Right. No one movie. seems to like each other. Nobody trusts each other also. And that makes sense given everything that was happening at the time. Um, but as Holly Martins investigates, he comes to find that maybe Harry Lyme didn't, Harry Lyme didn't die. Maybe something else occurred. And he speaks to a porter who reveals that there was a third man who helped remove the body, but no one seems to know who the third man was because the third man is not in the official account. And what is interesting about this is Wells's image is so connected to this movie, but he does not appear for the first hour. But it's, you got to feel a little bad for Joseph Cotton because Wells just dominates. Yeah, he just storms in. So Joseph Cotton's a very good actor. He's very good in this movie, but... He's also somebody, and I meant to say this earlier, but didn't. So when Wells and Houseman were working together in the Federal Theater Project, they started this theater company called Mercury Theater. And Mercury Theater is where Joseph Cotton got his start. So he is was a long at this point a longtime collaborator of Wells. Right. So Wells' introduction into the movie about an hour and five minutes in is probably one of the best because he literally just shows up standing on a street corner, light flashes on him. Oh, it's and he just has perfect. like a smirk on his face. So even though he hasn't been on the screen for over an hour, he just suddenly steals the show. He does. And it's I, I feel also sort of bad for Carol Reed because it's hard not to talk about the third man like it's Wells movie. Right. Which he is, did a lot of stuff in the movie where he kind of did his own thing. Yeah. But this is, I think one of those great examples where he, yes, he is a genius, but this also is an incredible collaboration between Carol Reed, Joseph Cotton, uh, between Robert Krasker, who did the fucking phenomenal cinematography, and that goddamn zither score. Oh, it's amazing. Once you hear from Anton Karras, once you hear this score, it will never not be in your head. there's this sense with Wells I think anyone who worked with him would have understood that you can't corral that man he's going to do what he does and this plays out famously in the cuckoo's uh the Swiss cuckoo clock speech where which is um, a wild speech I'm just gonna read it basically verbatim where he says you know what the fellow said in Italy for 30 years under the Borgias they had warfare terror murder and bloodshed but they produced Michelangelo Michelangelo Leonardo da Vinci and the Renaissance 
In Switzerland, they had brotherly love. They had 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. And Wills improvised that on the set. So it's one of those things where you can't stop him from, you know, being Orson Welles. And you wouldn't want to. I mean, you know, if you want to hire somebody to read some fucking lines, then hire a regular actor. But it's like if you're hiring Wells, you're going to get Wells. But imagine just like improvising that off the cuff, like something that well written just off the top of your head. And that is why it's so hard to sort of separate out Wells the auteur, which Wells is the myth. Yes, is which is a real figure, but also a figure he greatly mythologized. And other people have contributed to. Totally. And, greatly. And then Wells the collaborator and Wells the sort of genius artist in a more genuine way, separate from the mythology. Right. And this is a great movie to see that because he can do something off the cuff like that where he has the famous speech about the ants, which I believe was written into the script, but the way he delivers yeah. it is just brilliant. Oh, yeah, that's the other thing. It's based on a book by Graham Greene, who is one of the great sort of World War II era post-war writers about uh, like not only espionage, but also other kinds of thrillers. And he's somebody who... Much like John le Carré, R.I.P., yes, who also died this week, um, he's somebody who I think captures this fascinating, rapidly changing kind of state of the world at the time when things like the CIA begin to form and intelligence communities around the world really take on this kind of creepy nihilistic undertone, yep. not only in life, but definitely also in fiction. Totally. So shout out for Graham Greene. Yeah. Um, but as to the movie itself, so the racket that Harry Lyme is running. It's horrible. He's um, cutting penicillin with water to dilute it so he can sell more of it. And it causes a number of fatalities, but in children more prominently as um, deformities and mental issues and various things in children. So a kind of living death. Um, There's kind of a scene that parallels the concentration camp scene where Joseph Cotton walks through an infirmary and actually has to interact with the children. You don't see them um, because of probably restrictions on what would have been at that time, but it's still like a very powerful scene because you have to confront the reality of, what was happening and and what this charismatic person that you care about is really capable of. So Wells, the villain is probably a much more interesting character to me than maybe Wells, the heroic figure in some of the other movies. Well, and that's why I think things like, you know, Falstaff at chimes in midnight when he's playing people who are deeply flawed is when he's at his best. Yeah. Because it's like with a, with a good character, they don't have to be complex. Right. But with flawed characters or kind of likable charismatic villains, if you can't pull off that complexity, they just look ridiculous. I mean, it also shows. So one of the reasons I think it's interesting for him and why he's so good is he shows why those characters are seductive in real life. You know, how a cult leader can pull someone in, how a dictator can convince a nation to, you know, kill six million Jews, how a monster can convince Americans to vote for him, um, whatever monster that is that suits you, please fill in the blanks. Sure. But, um, I but also like think... the idea that he can find what makes those characters like so successful and translate it into a real performance is fascinating. 
Totally. And I do think that's something that makes The Stranger so fascinating is you could have gone a slightly different route with the script. Right. And had Kindler be a sympathetic Nazi who wants to reform but still has done these bad things. But he's just like unrepentant and is right. ready for World War Three. Yep. Totally. And that's one of the things that I think makes um, Wells's career so interesting is that he always found these roles he made them for himself or he found them in movies like this. He sought them out in a way. And since we're on that subject, uh, one of my favorite things in the history of the universe is the fact that Wells loved this fucking Harry Lyme character so much yeah, that talk about this. he went and I strongly, strongly urge you, if you're somebody who listens to podcasts a lot and you're trying to find more things to listen to. Orson Wells, the original podcaster. Yes, original podcaster. His radio broadcasts are fucking incredible. Most of them are available on places like archive.org. He was or so good he YouTube. almost drove the country crazy. Exactly. Although that, again, it's is something that's been mythologized. Yes. But, Wells contributing to yes, it. Yes, totally. Um, so after the success of The Third Man, Wells didn't want to stop being Harry Lime. I mean, and Harry Lime's a fun character. Harry Lime's fucking credit. awesome. But so he did this radio show that runs, I want to say there are like 30 or 40 episodes where it's the adventures of Harry Lime and it, it's, it's narrated. And I want to say at least partially written by Wells himself. And every episode is like him talking about the sort of further adventures of Harry Lime. And these, I think are all things that are supposed to take place before the events of the third man. Well, obviously based on the ending. So, but if someone to, hasn't seen the ending, if you haven't seen the ending of the third man, which came out on what, like 1951 or and, something, and you made it this far into our Orson Welles. Look, love Harry fest. Lime dies. I'm sorry to tell you, Harry Lime dies. Or does end. he, or does he? Oh my God. I'm going to spoil every <laughs> movie ever now. Okay. But you can spoil movies, and I'm just going to tell people that they need to listen to The Adventures of Harry Lyme. They because should. Because it is fucking delightful. And hearing him, it's so it's sort of like some of the episodes are kind of heist stories. Some of them are just more straightforward crime. But it's like he, you can hear in his voice, he's having the fucking best time getting to be Harry Lyme. And he does voices. <laughs> like, he's the narrator and does Harry Lyme's dialogue. And then he kind of does these voices for the other characters. So it's like clear that it's... Like I said, Orson Welles' original perfection. podcaster. Perfection. Patron saint of podcasters. It's perfection. Yeah. Tur you know what? Turn this off and go listen he to Adventures of Harry Lyme. beard. He did have the beard. Or at least he did later in life. Actually, one of the weirdest pictures you could ever see is Orson Welles in the 70s, clean shaven. It just doesn't work. There's a few of them that went around. I think he did it for his talk show once or twice. Yeah, it's strange. Yeah. For my own part, I have never had a thought which I could not set down in words with even more distinctness than that which I conceived it. There is, however, a class of fancies of exquisite delicacy which are not thoughts, and to which as yet I have found it absolutely impossible to adapt to language. These fancies arise in the soul, alas, how rarely, only at epochs of most intense tranquility, when the bodily and mental health are in perfection, and at those mere points of time where the confines of the waking world blend with the world of dreams. And so I captured this 
fancy, where all that we see or seem is but a dream within a dream. Shadows of shadows passing. It is now 1831, and as always, I am absorbed with a delicate thought. It is how poetry has indefinite sensations, to which end music is an essential, since the comprehension of sweet sound is our most indefinite conception. Music, when combined with a pleasurable idea, is poetry. Music without the idea is simply music. Without music or an intriguing idea, color becomes pallor. Man becomes carcass. Home becomes catacomb. And the dead are but for a moment motionless. Radio spot. Rare are the points of time where the confines of the waking world blend with a world of dreams. I have met such moments in time where I found that every thought that passed through my mind I could set down in words with even more distinctness than that which I conceived it. Edgar Allan Poe created tales of mystery and imagination in the 19th century. And now, a hundred years later, 20th century records has breathed the pulsing beat of life into the body of his work. The Allan Parsons Project, Tales of Mystery and Imagination, is a record album that will live in your memory forever. So this makes me sad because there are really so many other things that we could talk about. Wish I could go into F for Fake, my favorite Wells. I know. Um, and I wish we could talk about Touch of Evil, which is definitely one of his great, great Quite a achievements. Quite performance, too. Probably yeah, won't go over shit. so well today. It would not go over so well today. There's a lot happening there. There's a lot happening in the movie, but it's a fantastic movie, so and don't let me... Wells is you know, great in it. ...turn you off from it. Yes. If you like film noir or you just like cinema in general, watching Touch of Evil is crucial. Uh, but I feel like we only have time to really talk about one last film. So which, what did you want to talk about? So this is one of my, and I know I say this all the time, but this is one of my favorite films ever. It's uh, his adaptation of Kafka's The Trial, which he made in 1962. With a young Anthony Perkins. With a fantastic Anthony Perkins, and I don't think there will ever be... Not quite the coked out Anthony Perkins of his uh, Edge of Sanity days. Oh, God. One That's, of your favorites. We got to do an episode on Edge of Sanity. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty goth. Uh, so the trial is a great example of what we were talking about earlier, about how Wells was forced out of Hollywood and went to Europe. And it's this co-production between France and Italy and Germany. And he basically got money wherever he could. Um, kind of a... Probably not intentional, but a bit of a self-mythologizing there with his relationship with Hollywood as the stand-in for the bureaucracy of the film. Totally. I can and see him totally doing that. 
what's so, so Wells felt that the trial was his best film and I have to agree with him. It's another one that's really underrated. You know, people it's not talked about a lot because it's not, it's from his later period. So. Yeah. And I don't think it's been as readily available. Like everybody always talks about citizen Kane and, well, you know. I mean, I think Citizen Kane served purely the function. It was one of the first movies to do what it did with its use of. Oh, like, and it's great. Don't, yeah, don't get me wrong. But right. I think it's just that serves the the function of like Hollywood's own self mythologizing rather than something like The Trial, which wasn't a Hollywood product. Yes. It wasn't a product, really. No, and it's a commercial. I mean, I don't want to say it's a commercial film, but it's like it's a film in the sense it's a commercial product in the sense that it had to be released publicly. But his goal wasn't necessarily to make money. No, he wanted to make something about. And to me, the trial is also one of the great post World War II films that reflects back on the Holocaust and the experience of war refugees. And it's, I think, also the best adaptation of the trial or maybe the best adaptation of Kafka, period. And I don't say that lightly. I have a fucking tattoo from the cover of the trial on the back of my neck drawn by Kafka himself. So I take the trial very seriously. I mean, I think uh, Wells is someone who could definitely understand Kafka's writing, at least in the sense of like the absurd and everything that's happening. Yeah. And it's, it's hard for me to imagine at this point that like, you don't know the plot of the trial, but basically Joseph K played to sheer perfection by Anthony Perkins is woken up and basically told that he's under arrest and he spends the rest of the time trying to figure out why he's under arrest and what's so infuriating about this bureaucratic system is he's constantly redirected to other places. And in Wells' version, there are some differences. Namely, there are far more female characters. Wells himself plays a lawyer in a great cameo. And I think this is one of the few examples of Wells appearing in a film where he does not steal it from the lead actor. Like Anthony <laughs> Perkins can hold his own, but the cinematography, I mean, there are great performances like Elsa Martinelli and Romy Schneider and Jean Moreau uh, are in the film. The cinematography is some of the most beautiful I think I've ever seen, but it's also much like I was talking about with Macbeth, where he makes certain changes. I think there are really important changes that he makes because he's making the adaptation after World War II. Right. Like the ending of the book has Joseph K. dying. He's killed by these guards. And the, the sort of quote from Kafka is that he dies like a dog. And... Wells changed this ending and so I, I do think there are some really interesting connections to Macbeth in the sense that both of the films can be interpreted to be about violent resistance against fascist systems or, or sort Hollywood of, which is a fascist system or Hollywood any kind of totalitarian system and so here Kay is a figure of resistance and refuses to go willingly to his death and Wells felt that this was an essential change to the end of the film. He said of the original novel, he said to me, that ending is a ballet written by a Jewish intellectual before the advent of Hitler. Kafka wouldn't have put that in after the death of 6 million Jews. 
It all seems very much pre-Auschwitz to me. And I, I think there's so much about this film that is really about the war refugee experience. And, you know, earlier you mentioned he was really outspoken about the Vietnam War. And I think he spent a lot of time, as we've kind of been discussing in this, this is like accidentally our Orson Welles, the anti-fascist socialist episode. You can't do a thing about <laughs> Which is great. You can't do anything about Welles without like bringing up that aspect of him. And if you do, totally. you're purposely missing, you're like, you're, you're writing over an important part of who he was. Oh, totally. And I think he was just like, the, the best part about Orson Welles is that you could not shut the man up. He no, would give his it's opinion amazing. on any subject, and frequently it was stuff like politics. And he was fucking brilliant in that realm, too. Yeah, and I mean, even times when I disagree with him, I always am interested by what he has to say and respect his opinion, and he, it's always very kind of like well-reasoned and well-educated. My favorite version of that is when he's talking about Elia Kazan. Um, oh, man. He, he's like, he's a traitor, he's a rat. But he was a fantastic director. Yeah. And which is like only Wells could come to that conclusion. Like anyone who like talks about Kazan in that era, like the way he sold out people at the uh, House did. of American Committee. Like they're just like, he's evil. Wells is like, he's evil, but he's a good artist. Which I think. I appreciate that on some yeah, level. Like, I the appreciate way his mind works. that because I do think often good artists are lousy people and yes. Elliot Kazan is definitely an example of that. But I think Wells is a better filmmaker than Kazan. And I'm sure there are aspects of Wells' life where he probably wasn't the greatest human being as well. I think oh, sure. to your point, like the good artists are the ones who are unbalanced in some way or who don't have the capacity to control all of their, you know, all of that inside of them that drives them to make art. So they frequently end up doing terrible things or they end up burning out if you believe the Hollywood version of Wells's life or what have you. Um, they're people sure. who push boundaries because that's what art is. Good art is pushing boundaries and that's what he has done in all of his movies. And I think that's what he really tried to do in his adaptations. So they don't feel like these sort of one-to-one -one versions of, okay, let me do a great kind of classic version of this work of literature, but they always say something interesting, often pretty transgressive, but always very Wells. And I think one of the things I love so much about this adaptation of the trial is that he was able to shoot a bunch of the film in the Gare d'Orsay, the, the train station, which is another example of what you were talking about earlier with his sort of clock motif that yes. reappears throughout his films. And the idea of time pops up a lot. Yes, and time has a lot of weight in the trial in a way that I think if you watch it at the end of 2020 <laughs> or at the beginning of 2021 while still in quarantine, you will have a very different appreciation for it. Totally. Uh, but he felt it was important to film in train stations because of all of the things they represented. And so here it's not this kind of like straightforward place of travel but they become these sort of like absurdist nightmare scapes place and of lost time yes a place of lost time definitely but also a place that symbolizes bureaucratic oppression um and he he actually talked about this he said that the reason that he wanted to film in train stations specifically that one he said that it's a very beautiful location but it's full of sorrow the kind of sorrow that only accumulates in a railway station where people wait. 
I know this sounds terribly mystical, but really a railway station is a haunted place. And the story is all about people waiting, waiting, waiting for their papers to be filled. It's full of the hopelessness of the struggle against bureaucracy. Waiting for a paper to be filled is like waiting for a train. And it's also a place of refugees. People were sent to Nazi prisons from there. Algerians were gathered there. So it's a great place of sorrow. Of course, my film has a lot of sorrow, too, so the location infused a lot of realism into the film. And if for some reason also you're, you know, born under the same rock that we've been discussing, when he said Algerians were gathered there, he's talking about the French-Algerian War, which happened to bring pretty much immediately after World War around II. Around to another stranger, the Camus. Yes, we're coming full circle here <laughs> from stranger to stranger. Well, so because we've talked about politics so much, one of the things I wanted to highlight about uh, the trial, one of the... Ironies of this movie is um, Wells obviously had sympathies that may have leaned socialist. He worked with socialist artists. He participated in projects that would be seen as socialist, but he could not shoot this movie in, in Kafka's home of Prague because yes. the communist Czechoslovakian government thought Wells was like too decadent an artist. So it wasn't even that. It w That was definitely part of it. But part of it, which is an even greater irony, is that Kafka was banned in his home country yes. through the 30s and 40s because of the Nazi occupation, but also up until the late 60s because of the communist government. And this really didn't change until, I want to say... 68 or 69 there's something in Prague called like the World Kafka Conference which was academics meeting to discuss his work so it's like when we talk about Kafka now we think about him as this kind of great Czech writer alongside people like Milan Kundera and you know so on and so forth the like four Czech writers that Americans know right but for decades you couldn't read Kafka in Czech and his work was banned well I won't take credit for it because my family is Slovak, so I'll blame the Czechs. That's fine. I'll allow it. There you go. Although it still brings me great shame that my people would do that to both of them, great artists. Yeah, it was a rough couple of decades you guys had there. I, <laughs> rough couple of decades, even, you know, still. Yes. So normally we, we end music. our episodes by talking about music, but... Unfortunately, there isn't really much of a connection beyond obviously playing the theme from The Third Man. That fucking Zither music. Or, or the Orson Welles yes. song in the beginning. So um, we're not going to go into anything with music. I mean, we're coming up on two hours right now. So normally we would discuss music, but we will probably save that for another episode. And last episode was all music. So and I mean, it's kind of hard to jam something in here, figuring out how to make it work with Orson Wells because music is very much a part of his movies um but yeah I mean he wasn't someone like there is definitely music inspired by Wells there's an amazing picture of uh, Man of War hanging out with Wells because they had him read some lines on one of their albums so good lots of artists inspired by Wells so we probably could have put in those songs inspired by him but it would have felt like a little force yeah and I think you know if you want something that sounds goth as fuck, go listen to that Macbeth sound design. Yeah. Shit is full of doom. So have we determined if Orson Welles is goth? Yeah. I don't think there's ever any question. The man wore a cape like nobody's business. I'm going to wear a cape now. Best of luck to you. <laughs>
their meaning will unfold. These words are all that's left. Though we've never met my only son, I hope you know that I would have been there to watch you grow. But my call was heard. Well, so it is written. It's out there. 